This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is David Means, author of Histopia, Assorted Fire Events, The Spot, A Quick Kiss of Redemption, The Secret Goldfish, and most recently, Instructions for a Funeral. Means was raised in Michigan and lives in Nyack, New York, and teaches at Vassar College. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Paris Review, and Esquire, among others. In his new short story collection, Instructions for a Funeral, the themes he explores in these stories include addiction, mental health, death, violence, paternal urges and loss, and the ways in which time can alter our perspective and our humanity. We began the interview with Means talking about how Instructions for a Funeral begins. Your collection begins in a very interesting way that I would think most people who don't open a book expect, which is it starts with a story called Confessions that have has three sections, wor- the work, violence, and loss. And as soon as you begin, the first sentence is, I've been writing stories for 30 years now. And so you get the sense that you're not reading fiction. Sure. I... I felt after several short story collections and sort of being at a new point in my life and also just looking at all the stories I had, this happened to uh, be one of the stories, one of the, one of the sequences. And uh, I really thought about it deeply. I, I went back and forth. I'm like, you can't begin the collection with this confessional thing, even though it's not completely a real confession. It's a persona that I, I created. And then finally, I just sort of threw up, threw up my hands and thought, you know, why not? Um, why not uh, let my um, authorial voice in at the beginning? And we live in this time of sort of uh, disequilibrium. Uh, we're questioning what's real, what's not, what's fake news, what's real news. And I didn't want to play a game. I didn't want to be tricky. I didn't want to be postmodern, but I just thought... Um, that's the way to do it. it. It took a lot of sort of uh, a lot of process to figure out uh, that it would be okay to just go ahead and start the book with confessions, set a certain tone, and then go back to storytelling in a sort of conventional mode in the next stories. I had to trust that the reader was going to understand that in some way the power of the imagination is what uh, the stories are about. Uh, in other words, I wanted to make sure that the reader didn't get confused and think that I was writing a sort of autobiographical uh, sequence tr- throughout the rest of the book. In the work, you're sort of talking about how when you write a story, you're trying to get the most salient points down and that it's not that you necessarily have an axe to ground grind, but it's something that you've been thinking about and you're talking about maybe recreating 
a, a vision of something that you've seen in a story form that can last over time, but then that over time it it doesn't really last. That yeah. maybe yeah. if you look at geological time, what's what's the purpose of it all? Yeah, yeah, you know, and and that came from that sense came from my father. My father died a few years ago, um, and his death. Uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned it maybe even in in those confessions. I don't remember, um, but in a later little small shorter story, I mentioned it. When he died, I just started to sort of um, reassess uh, what it means to be alive in relation to this terminal point of death, stuff like that. Um, and I think every time you write a story, you're you're laying claim to uh, the fact that you're not going to be there. You know, you're putting these words on the page and you're you're honing them and you're trying to make them as strong as possible. And and yet you also have this sense really deep inside that you're doing it in, in a kind of desperation um, and you want to you're desperate to leave a mark on the world. And, and yet even deeper inside, you know, that eventually that mark is going to be gone. And that's what I wanted to get in those opening stories, that sense of sort of carving words in the, in the wall um, with, a, with a chisel. And, but you still know that the wind and the dust is going to take it all away. Yeah, and, and as you go on in that segment and talk about violence and loss, I felt like in some ways you were giving me a key to how the, to read the rest of the book. I don't know if you thought about it that way, but I kept reading the stories and going back and thinking about what you said about violence and a sense of loss and reckoning with what hasn't been lost and what is lost and that, you know, putting on violence on the page isn't necessarily gratuitous, but real. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't really want to sort of guide the reader, but uh, I have written a lot of dark stories with in, intense violence, but I never, I'm not a violent person. And I guess I wanted to uh, somehow point to the reader that, you know, if you're going to use violence, if violence is in the stories, it isn't just to sort of make a um, splashy, you know, pulp fictiony type of of an artistic statement. I think I think you do have to take violence seriously, and I, I I guess I was just sort of trying to get that point out, but also analyze the process of the way we uh, we tend to project onto the creator the the essence of the thing that was created. And you said that your father had recently died. There is a lot of death throughout, and so I'm wondering how that informed your your writing as well as your your psyche yeah well to be honest most of the stories were written um way before my father died and he 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 was alive and well when when i wrote them so i don't actually i don't think that his death was you know affected most of the stories but it did affect the way i sort of thought of how to put the book together and and probably why i put those those confessional pieces at the beginning I just try to go to stories where I can find them. Actually, sometimes people die in my stories. Sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes the, the main character is, has, has nothing to do with the, the violence. I just sort of go there in some way. I always sort of defend it because I say, okay, we live in this incredibly violent society, and, and I, I'm trying to write about the world that I, 
either grew up in or that I'm, I'm seeing around me. But I think as a story writer, you just go where you need to go to find the narratives that you want to tell. And, and usually good narratives come in where there's a serious problem. You have a lot of men down on their luck who, in several of your stories, maybe homeless men, delusional men in mental institutions who are really looking for that break. In the case of one of the stories, they're, they have a scratch-off ticket and they're, uh, for, a, for a lottery, and they have so much, so many ideas and superstitions around what they should be thinking and talking about, what they scratch it off. But just holding the ticket brings them back to so many memories of their lives. Yeah, those those two. Um, one one is a big talker, and and he tells a lot of stories about his life. And um, I'm always interested in the way. Um, and this comes partially from experience. Um, I have a, a close family member who's recently been homeless, and uh, he he became involved with opioids, you know, at, at a relatively late age, um, and then sort of ended up on the street. And I, you know, I became interested, and I've always been interested in the way um, characters who are sort of on the margins um, talk and the way they tell stories, because stories are free, and um, it's the one thing that you can do. It doesn't cost you anything. You can just sort of hang around and talk, tell, tell stories about your life. And in that story, uh, you know, they're scratching the ticket. And um, I've been up to that place in Duluth on the, on the shore of Lake Superior. And they're just, um, he's, he's sort of, they're very superstitious. And I've also found that that's, at least, you know, with characters on the edge, everything has a, a high price. If you're in a state like that, you know, every little thing matters a lot. And, and so they're, they're super superstitious about how to, how to scratch off the ticket. And they set up all these regulations on how to do it. It just happened when I was writing it, that, that sort of process. Yeah, and the act of storytelling is, is important in there. So the, the characters are named Kurt and Merle, and Kurt is really the talker. And he's going back and and sharing some stories from when he was at Vietnam and talks about his best friend that he went with, Billy T, who had a lisp, who when he gave orders for where a bomb should go off, they might have misunderstood what he said because of the lisp and and bombed the wrong place. But also how that story, the grief of that story because his friend died, might have saved his life because he used it to get out of other things. So it also made me think a lot about the redemptive and and life-saving qualities of stories, literally and figuratively. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly, you know, what was happening in that one particular scene. And it, it, it's, I wasn't intentionally doing it. it. It just sort of happened. But how, how we use the stories we tell as literal tools to, to, reorient and also to change our lives. I think, you know, I might be wrong, but it seems like all short stories are about that at some level. They're all about uh, how we tell, how we use narrative to try to control. I mean, I'm thinking of Flannery O'Connor, Good Man is Hard to Find. Uh, the grandmother is is trying linguistically at some level to um, persuade the misfit not to shoot her. You know, um, and in Alice Monroe, you have these stories where storytelling is part of the story itself. 
or a character wants to um, tell another character uh, a version of an event. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the Monroe story where there's a, there's a sort of rumor, and actually rumor is another form of storytelling, um, where a rumor goes around about somebody and the rumor is not correct. And the mother gets a letter saying what you said was incorrect. It's, it's something, it's sort of a physics, really, for me at least. It's like a, almost a physical feeling. The, these characters are by the frozen ice of the lake. And I noticed, I mean, as I was reading through this, I know you live in New York. I didn't know where you grew up, but there's a lot of Michigan in there. And there's a lot of references to rivers and lakes. Like enough so I was like, hmm, I wonder, you know, what this <laughs> this guy thinks or what's his relationship to water and lakes. That's a good question. Um, well, I grew up in Michigan, so it's the Great Lakes state. So I have lakes all around me, and I I fished a little bit, and and um, so I was sometimes so you know in rivers, standing in rivers. Um, and now I live along the Hudson River, so I look out my window and I can base, barely see it, but I can see little bits of the river through the trees. I I don't know why, but landscape for me is always a character and. I find stories in landscapes, like I'm going to Reno um, tomorrow for a conference, um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to just looking at Reno and just staring at it and spending some time catching images, because a lot of the time I'll, I'll go somewhere and I'll, I'll stand on the, like I went to Cleveland once and I stood and I just sort of looked around and looked at a, a certain part of um, the lake, and, and, and I started to sort of get a story. I'm not saying I actually miraculously get a story out of that, but I, but that's how I work. I, I find these places and I, I sort of think about how I could put it, who lives there and how I could put a character there. So rivers are huge. Rivers and water are just part of that. Do you think in stories a lot? I mean, when you go places, are you, are you kind of always thinking, I wonder how this will fit into a narrative and is it an organic process for you that, it, it, your mind just goes there? You know, writing is so associated and connected with daydreaming. And, I mean, daydreaming and fiction writing are actually two different things, but obviously. But, um, you know, I go, I, whenever I'm traveling or even walking, um, I daydream a lot. I look at faces and I, I look at people and I talk to people all the time. I try to hear voice. I try to hear, their, hear what they're saying and hear how they're saying it. I think it's part of what I, when I teach, I try to teach my students that you need to learn how to look. You need how to, you need to really practice seeing, you need to practice listening and and you need to pay acute attention and, and also daydream at the same time. You know, you have to extrapolate from, from the things that you're looking at. There's a lot of men in here with brother issues or mentions of brothers, or usually it's one brother is doing okay and another brother is not. To be honest, I don't have a brother. <laughs> I have I have two sisters, and as a matter of fact, uh, which which and actually I'm I'm honored that you thought I had a brother because that means I um, wrote you know I have been writing in a way that um, made you think I had a brother, uh, which kind of reminds me that one time I I, I met Tim O'Brien and I asked him like how his daughter was because I had read the things they carried. And, and there's a mention of a daughter, and he said, I, I don't have a daughter. <laughs> um, 
I haven't talked a lot publicly about this because for years I thought it was it it was a a fuel for my writing, but um, I have two sisters, and one of my sisters has had um, mental she she has mental health issues to say the least, and has been in and out of all kinds of trouble and and, and problems and situations. So I I've used I, I wouldn't even say used, and she's part of my life now. But when I've written stories, it's always been with her in mind. So if I go to um, quote unquote toxic males and go to male men on the margins, it's often been somehow writing um, stories that try to uh, understand the kind of young men that she was around when she was um, when when we were growing up. And that's another aspect of the book. I never came out with that story uh, and talked about it because I see my fiction writing as a separate thing. I try to keep those two, my private world and my and my fictional world, completely separate. In this society, I think we're at a turning point or maybe have been for a while where it's more okay or it feels safer to talk about mental illness. But I do think that we're plagued by mental illness in this society. We don't deal with, with it very well. We kind of want to look at it out of the corner of our eye, but not straight on. So I'm curious or just wonder if there's also a place for fiction to be advocacy. And I don't, I don't mean like with a big A, but maybe a little A. That's a great question. I mean, it it might sound snarky to say this, but I think a lot of fiction is a form of advocating for the the marginal, um, whatever you want to call it. I think with mental health, it is, it is really great that people like, I think, Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga or whoever came out recently and talked about mental health, men, mental health as an issue. It's really important because in my case, there was a lot of shame around it, not for me so much, but for my parents. And, you know, they were a different generation. So one reason why I didn't talk about it in public a lot was because of I didn't want to hurt my parents. And they're both gone now. My mom died in October, which is another factor. Um, but that shame is so damaging and painful. And um, when the reality is that mental health, uh, mental illness, which is a term I don't really like that much for some reason, is it's like um, cancer or any other disease. And it should be treated that way. I think this collection moves a little bit as a reader towards a more surreal. I want to use the word surreal, although it's not. But you're very stabilized in the first story. And then by the end, you're looking at, you know, homeless brothers who might not be at the peak of their game and be as mentally alert. And you start with Fist Fight, Sacramento, August 1950. And that story is very vivid. It's it's just about two kids on opposite sides of the track, so to say, who live, you know, yeah. one is a ranch boy, one lives in town and is destined for Yale, and they get in a fist fight over one calling the other an oaky. It's very vivid and grounded in reality. That, that story is interesting because it's sort of the most recent story in the book that I published, but I started writing it a few years ago. Because I have a friend, he's an older older writer, probably in his 70s, and he grew up on a ranch in California. He's a Western writer, and he talk, told me a lot about um, Oki, you know, the Okies and, and fist fighting and the way they used to fight just for fun. 
you know, like almost as a form of entertainment. And then, and then the story becomes about love. It becomes about a relationship that came out of that moment. And then the couple is older, they're married and they're looking back and they're, uh, he sees that moment as the sort of point at which his relationship began. Uh, and then there's also an issue of, of class and the fact that the young woman was abused and that there's a tangle of interrelationships in the story. One thing I really think about a lot is um, trusting the reader and the reader's ability to understand um, imagination. And that um, that story is challenging because it, it, it demands that the reader uh, go with yet another uh, sort of John Steinbeck fist fight story. You know, uh, if they don't get through the whole story, they're just going to be left with the sensation that um, that I wrote a story about um, two more cliched type figures. I felt kind of like I had to put that story uh, as one of the first stories in the book in, in a kind of challenging way. I think the way that you use time in that story is also incredible because you are showing this whole life and you're going back and forth so seamlessly and you're sort of tying it on, on this one moment, but it's almost like bending time and folding in on itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you have, to, for me personally, the way I write, I have to bend time or the story just feels I don't have to, and I don't always bend time. But in that, in the case of of fist fight, I had to bend time. Otherwise, it's just another boring fight story uh, about masculinity. And I, I mean, I just you have to bend time, or the story seems really, really short, or or really long and boring. I'm wondering about the story you wrote. It's called Carver and Cobain, and you start off with in italics just talking about. The, at least the narrator's relationship to both um, and how they had similarities. They both, you know, were drinkers. They both were working class kids. They were um, both grew up in the same area. And that's all sort of in italics and looking at what's similar about them and the influence of each on the narrator. And then there's a little segment about each character. That story, again, uh, is a good case, a good uh, example of how I thought, okay, I'll just intrude here a little bit with my own self, with a little bit of my own authorial self at the beginning in the italics, because I, I really did want to write a story where I somehow connected the two um, interrelationship between Kurt Cobain and Raymond Carver. Uh, but then I found that I couldn't do it. But I still wanted to put those two things side by side and let the reader feel the resonance between them. Um, the, the fact that these two completely different artists who I love in different ways somehow came from similar places. So I just put it in, the, I just put it in there near the end of the book. But it's also an example of a sort of fiction that pushes to the very edge and line of demands on the reader and um, also sort of pushes to the very edge of what is fiction and what's not fiction. I thought it was interesting how it resonated for me, though, with the the book as a whole between how this book maybe looks at writing and the writing process and writers and how this book also looks at people with mental health issues. And I thought it was kind of this small encapsulation of each one kind of standing for a lot of the characters or or narrator's stance in the story. It was a kind of a tiny microcosm. 
I, yeah, to be honest, I didn't know that that's what I was doing when I sort of ordered them and put that story at that point. But now I'm finding I'm getting critical feedback and I'm finding that people are, are finding that. So I'm really happy with it. it. But it wasn't intentional. You know, maybe it was subconsciously intentional that I was trying to sort of make some really complicated statement about the nature of narrative. And, and but, uh, you know, it just felt right to put it at that point. I don't even I don't even know how to articulate it. Uh, where is that line between uh, the stories that we make up and the stories that, that are actually quote unquote real? Um, I think I was just sort of saying, I, I'm not sure where that line is. <laughs> Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I think I, I want to read a passage um, or maybe even the whole poem if there's time from Philip Levine, the poet. This is a poem called What Work Is. We stand in the rain in a long line waiting at Ford Highland Park for work. You know what work is. If you're old enough to read this, you know what work is, although you may not do it. Forget you. This is about waiting, shifting from one foot to another, feeling the light rain falling like mist into your hair, blurring your vision until you think you see your own brother ahead of you, maybe 10 places. You rub your glasses with your fingers, and of course, it's someone else's brother, narrower across the shoulders than yours, but with the same sad slouch, the grin that does not hide the stubbornness, the sad refusal to give in to rain, to hours wasted waiting, to the knowledge that somewhere ahead a man is waiting who will say, no, we're not hiring today for any reason he wants. You love your brother. Now, suddenly, you can hardly stand the love flooding you for your brother who's not beside you or behind you or ahead because he's home trying to sleep off a miserable night shift at Cadillac so that he can get up before noon and study his German. Works eight hours a night so he can sing Wagner, the opera you hate most, the worst music ever invented. How long has it been since you told him you loved him, held his wide shoulders, opened your eyes wide and said those words and maybe kissed his cheek? You've never done something so simple so obvious, not because you're too young or too dumb, not because you're jealous or even mean or incapable of crying in the presence of another man. No, just because you don't know what work is. That's Philip Levine. Why did you choose that? Well, when you said to pick something, originally I had a checkoff story, then I um, went to another story, and then I thought, why not pick something that really influenced you at an early age? And um, I was a young writer. I was back in Ohio at the time, and I was sort of searching for a mentor. I was a poet. I began as a poet, um, or I thought I was a poet at that, at that time. And uh, I, I started reading Philip Levine, and I, um, I really felt that he was speaking of people that I grew up with, people in my neighborhood back in Michigan, people who I had seen and it was a profound like opening for me. So then I ended up going to Boston. My my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she was going to school in Boston, and I went out to Boston, and I was hanging out with her, and I was up at, at Tufts University's um, English department. And I'm like, oh my God, Philip Levine teaches here. Oh my God, I've got to like get in touch with Philip Levine. So I, I don't know why I did this, but I called him on a Saturday morning. Mr. Levine, Mr. Levine, um, I love your I love your poetry. I'm a poet myself. I'd love to get to talk to, with you. And 
he told me basically to screw off, you know, and, uh, but then I said, I'm from Michigan. I'm from the same place you're from. And I ended up going over to his house and sitting with him. And he read some of my poems and wrote me, um, he didn't read them there, but he read them and, and then wrote me a um, note and gave me and, from, and gave me some support. So the people who influence you are the people who teach you that it's okay to write about the people that you, you, you're around or in the vernacular or voice of these people. So that's a long-winded version of why I picked Philip Levine. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? I'm going to read the last part of the chair uh, story and instructions for a funeral. Then I got to the wall and looked down and saw that the tide was still coming in and he was lying on his side in a few inches of water with a shawl of wet black sand around his collar and his socks muddy and his eyes guilty but also comic. Looking up at me, establishing a long sustained moment of good eye contact. Keep looking, I thought. Don't ever stop. Continue to look at me like that for the rest of time, I think I thought. Then the fear that had begun to form when I was halfway down the yard caught up, pure, sharp, and eternal in form and struck me under the rib bone. I was weeping softly as I lowered myself down to help him, lifting my palms and supporting his feet so that I, he could clamber over the wall. Then he stood atop it and looked down at me, his old man, as I wiped my eyes. He was looking down at a bright red face, a whiskered and ruddy. A mouth moving on that face was saying, that's it, you're in the chair. It's the chair for you, little man. No snap, just the chair. I mean it. I give you three, at least four warnings, the mouth kept saying. You're damn lucky the tide wasn't all the way up. Meanwhile, the day had folded into itself and combined with the terror to become vivid and pristine and perfect. Across the river, the train was gone. Then, as the wind roared along the palisades at Hook Mountain and took on a northerly bite, as the night began to descend upon the water and the tidal flow established itself in a southerly direction, working firmly past the bridge pylons churning up white fees, my son leaned and offered his hands to help me over the wall. And the air between us, before we actually touched, filled with an astonishingly pure love. It was there for a few seconds, and then it vanished. And I took him into the house, to the chair, where I told him to sit until Sharon came home. He resisted, squirming from the chair. But I insisted, saying, sit there and wait until your mother gets home. Your time's not up. Your time's not even close to being up. Tell me why you chose that. It's always a struggle to figure out how to end a story or where it should end. And I think in the revision, I, I don't know, I began, to, I began to realize that, you know, what we have at the end here, because the father's been watching the boy and trying to sort of determine how to, how to discipline him um, or at least help him learn how to discipline himself. I just, uh, I wanted to get some kind of balance in there at the end. And so when the, when the son reaches up to help the father, which happened in a later draft, I, I felt, okay, that's the right thing. It's a balance. The son is little, but sons can help their fathers. Uh, they, can, they can provide grace and equilibrium between adult and, and child. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it just took a lot of work to get, 
that's the way it was. And also the point of view is really both expansive and narrow at the same time. Where do you write? I write a lot of different places. I have an office uh, study that I'm supposed to work in most of the time, but I drift upstairs to the kitchen table. And, and sometimes I go to the local um, Starbucks or and then there's another coffee shop and, and I work there because I feel like it's um, sort of a safe space. I work all over the place, but I, but I usually write by hand for the first draft. So I, I'm pretty, I can go a lot of different places without too much trouble. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I, I usually walk with my wife or in, in fact, when my kids were at home, I'd walk with them. So I like to walk a lot. And, and there's a path that goes along the Hudson River, um, and, I, and I often walk on that path. Yeah, that's, there's, I do a lot of things to get away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show, my wife, Geneve, I, I usually show her a draft. She's a fifth-grade teacher. She's not a professional writer. She always gives me a really good like sense of, uh, okay, I, I might like this one, or I'm, I'm not sure about what you're doing here. And then I go, after I do some revision on it, after she reads it, I have a, a, a writer friend um, who gives me a very, um, I know him really well, and I know um, his feedback in a certain way, so I can either take it or leave it, because I kind of understand exactly where he's going to come from. So I give it to him. Then I do revision and maybe go through, uh, show it to a few other people. Maybe one or two other people, but often I just revise it and then send it out. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, rejection feels so personal, and it, there's nothing as painful. Um, but what I usually do is try to chalk it up to um, an understanding that um, there's a wide range of taste, and it's, it's random in a lot of ways. Uh, and then sometimes I chalk it up to the story's not working or it's not good. I attempt to see any rejection as a kind of gift, as a sort of thing that can somehow make, um, make the work better. And what is your favorite word? Um, the word sure, as in um, not just I'm sure of that, but also um, when somebody says, do you love me? And they say, sure, or um, will you help me out with this? Sure. I think it comes back from my parenting days. I was an at-home father, and I used to love it when my kids would say, I'd say, do you mind putting your coat in the closet? And they'd go like, sure, Dad, I'll do it. Sure. I, I just love that word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was David Means, author of the short story collection, Instructions for a Funeral. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft a Dialogue on Writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.